0: Hey friends, it's Ryan here, and I am so glad I get the opportunity just to be here and chat with you guys this week. I miss you all so very much. I miss your faces, I miss your hugs, just your presence, and while we aren't able to be together in each other's presence right now, uh, I'm just thankful for this little opportunity to be able to chat with you, even from a distance. Uh, It's been great keeping up with you guys on Facebook. We have our South Bend City Church Open Forum Facebook group, if you're unfamiliar with that, and um, it's just been a good time to get to stay connected and hear how you're doing. Um, Hearing from small business owners carrying the weight of not knowing uh, what things are going to continue to look like for them and having their, their, their life work at risk at this point and the heaviness of that, I'm hearing from those of you that have experienced layoffs already and the financial insecurity that comes from that. Uh, People with medical conditions or medical procedures that were already scheduled that have nothing to do with uh, the COVID-19 virus, but those things feel a lot heavier in these seasons. And hearing from those with mental health concerns, that times like this of isolation and distance just feel that much heavier. My heart is with you guys. And, um, yeah, I'm praying for you. So let's stay connected. Let's keep checking in with each other. Keep sharing how you're doing, please. And uh, let's find ways as a church and as a community that we can continue to carry this social burden together. For today, uh, this is something I'm a little nervous about because I'm trying to do this teaching just via podcast. So I'm sitting here staring at a wall uh, as I'm talking to you. And that's a little intimidating because normally when I teach, I'm kind of feeding off of crowd response just your nods and your eye contact and the energy in the room Uh, so it's a little different here talking just simply to a wall though I admit I am parent of teenagers at this point so uh, I do have some level of experience with talking and getting no response whatsoever so thank you to my daughters for preparing me for this on some level uh, for our teaching today, we're continuing in our Lent series focusing on a holiness. And holiness may be a word that uh, has been complicated for you throughout your church tradition. and may be something that you're very familiar with. Um, but the simplicity of what we were coming to in, through Jason's teaching so far has been simply that holiness is being present to the presence of God. How can we be more aware and more present to what God is doing in the world? In the second week of teaching on this, Jay talked about the unique part of being set apart as part of what holiness means, right? That we as people of God are to be set apart for things that enhance life and goodness in the world and set apart uh, opposed from things that diminish life and goodness in the world. And then lastly, in the third week, Jason took us into talking about how this is all a communal effort, right? That the project of holiness and being present to the presence of God is realized as we enc- come together and as we encourage each other and as we challenge each other towards life and goodness. So today the question uh, picks up from that, and we're talking about, okay, set apart is a part of holiness, but set apart to what extent, right? Um, from conversations I've had with many of you, I realize that many of us grew up in these really conservative churches where set apart meant really set apart, right? Uh, Traditions that were very concerned about uh, the content of movies or music, things going on in society. Uh, Traditions that were hesitant to hang out with anybody who wasn't a part of the church uh, and that had strict rules on everything from dancing to board games, right? If we were going to be set apart from society and the world, we were going to make sure that we did it right. But then we look at the stories of Jesus and those look very different. Right? Jesus seems to be getting out there, he's going to parties, he's mixing it up with all sorts of people of poor reputation, which is a very different take on being set apart than the tradition that I experienced that many of you did. And then there's kind of this third category where maybe we've decided to wrestle with how that tension works uh, between one view being set apart and another, and maybe we've come to like a really good place of how we want to live life as a result of that, But maybe we haven't made a plan. Maybe we've just kind of ignored it and let life happen. And then someday we wake up and we find ourselves in a place regarding how we interact with the world. And maybe it's a place we feel good about or maybe it's a place that doesn't feel so good and we wonder how we got there. But often we realize that we haven't thought a lot about where we want to be with regards to what it means to be set apart or what it means to participate in society and the world. Which brings us to this moment we find ourselves in, right? Quarantine, social distancing. And this season, whatever our normal posture towards society and the world, is changed. Right now, we're withdrawn from society in many ways, right? And while this season may be heavy in many ways, with all the fears or anxieties or burdens that may come with it, uh, this season where we're kind of pulled apart, withdrawn, is also this opportunity for us. Because anytime we're removed from something, it becomes a good opportunity to step back and ask questions without the pressure of being immersed in that thing itself. It's actually this kind of very Lenten practice, not that we've given up society for Lent or anything, but it kind of has that same sort of effect, right? I remember a couple years ago, uh, I was trying to figure out what to do for Lent, and I decided uh, to free up some of my time by giving up a phone game that I was playing. During that season, I remember I gave up that phone game that was a lot of fun to me, Uh, and I spent a season of Lent without it, and when it came to the end of season of Lent, uh, I realized that I actually didn't want to pick up that game again uh, when given the opportunity because I realized that now that I had stepped away from that game, I realized that that game was actually, it actually felt like work to me, right? Uh, The very thing that was supposed to be entertaining and relaxing and giving me a distraction from the work of the world had actually become work itself, but I wasn't able to see it until I had stepped away from it and realized that stepping away gave me an opportunity to see that thing in a different way. Now, I've had people on the other end of it, friends who have given up things for Lent, uh, that at the end of Lent, they realize not only is this thing not bad for them, but this thing that they had given up actually makes them a healthier person. And in giving it up, they were able to see how much it was needed in their life. And so when they return to this uh, thing after Lent, they are actually returning with a new uh, fervor and new purpose as a result of that. So either way, this time, this moment is an opportunity for us to ask, when it comes to society and the world and being set apart, what should our position be? To take a look at that, It's helpful to consider the work of theologian Richard Niebuhr. Now, Niebuhr was a theologian who lived and worked in the early to mid-1900s. And one of his uh, most well-known works is a book called Christ in Culture. And in this book, he examines this very topic that we're talking about today and asking what are the postures that people following the way of Jesus have or should have interacted with the world and society and cultural around us? What are the ways in which we're to be set, set apart? Or what are the ways in, in which we're supposed to dive in and be integrated into that? So he gives us a number of postures. The first po- posture that he gives that I want us to look at is what he calls Christ of culture. Now, in this po- posture, as uh, people following Jesus have looked at things, they, they've come to see no difference whatsoever between the way of Jesus and culture around them, right? That everything that you would see in culture. And society, in the world. Everything is good. And this kind of comes from the thinking that God created humanity in his image, right? And then humanity is the one that creates culture and society. So whatever emerges from that must be good, that there's no tension, no need to be different whatsoever. Now, it's an interesting perspective for sure, but it seems to deny the very concept of being set apart, right? I mean, if everything's already good, why did the Apostle Paul, for instance, in the New Testament, spend so much time writing advice to churches, encouraging them to have different standards than the society around them? The Paul was constantly writing them, telling them that they needed to turn to nourish life and to reject things in their society that diminish life. And so if he had to give them that advice uh, to, to set themselves apart from cultural around them, then this posture of Christ and culture uh, being all good together doesn't make m- much sense to me. So I think we should consider some of the postures that actually take set-apartness a little more seriously, and he offers three of those. Uh, the next one he uh, Niebuhr offers is called Christ Against Culture. Right In this position, uh, the church and the people of Jesus are seeing a world that is full of things that diminish life, right? The world is negative. There's a lot of bad stuff going on out there. And so if they realize that the church is supposed to be set apart, uh, then they have to take into account what they do to get away from all of these bad things out there in the world and society. So the Christ against culture position uh, tries to get away from the world to make sure that we don't get defiled. You see this in extreme forms and, for instance, the Amish community, right, that sees uh, sees this negative stuff going on there in society and feels the best thing they can do is to withdraw away from that, create their own communities uh, that are entirely different from the way the world or society works. But it's not just all as extreme as the Amish, right? Christ against culture can take on all sorts of forms, including kind of, I don't know how to label this, fundamentalist evangelicalism. Uh, which says, yeah, the world is bad uh, and we should avoid it, but we can't get away and start our own communities. That's not realistic. Uh, So even though we're just going to stay here and live in the middle of society, we have to avoid it at all costs, right? So this is where uh, you have kind of backgrounds that many of us may have experienced where we're still living in the world, but we're trying to avoid all these different aspects of coming across it, and uh, we developed our entirely separate Christian world of Christian music, Christian books, Christian art, all these things that kind of are this completely separate world from the world around us. And there's a virtue of this posture in that it actually does value being set apart, which is admirable kind of given the instruction we see throughout Scripture. But the problem with it is this way of being set apart doesn't seem to reflect the example of Jesus. We'll get to that more in a little bit. All right, so a second posture I want to look at is Christ and culture and tension. And so this posture where Christ and culture and tension says that, yeah, the world is this destructive, uh, bad place, but we can't really get away from it. Uh, we have no choice but to live out there in the world and to interact with the world. So we should just go ahead and do that. We should interact with the world. We should interact with society. But we need to realize that that's kind of making us dirty. And so then we need to pull away into our Christian communities and into time with God and into time with the church to kind of get us clean again, right? And that the whole project of life then is this back and forth between, you know, going out and interacting with the world and society and culture and then having to go into our church life and church world and world with God and kind of finding cleansing. Now, it's an interesting posture in this one as well, uh, but it assumes a couple of things that I have questions with. The first thing it assumes is that what's out there in the world, uh, apart from church culture, what else is out there is all bad, that it's all bad out there. I have some questions with that because that doesn't seem true to what I see and watch and experience, right? It doesn't seem to account for the beautiful music and art that comes from outside of the church world, but is still very much there. It doesn't seem to account for Italians singing from their balcony during this time of crisis. It doesn't seem to account for the fun of a football game in the fall where our whole community is coming together, right? All of those things seem to have goodness in them. They're not these entirely uh, negative or defiling kinds of experiences that diminish life in us, right? There's goodness and there's life in those things, Uh, but those aren't things that just come from the world of church, So I asked some questions there. The second kind of part of this that I ask questions about is it assumes in this theory that when darkness and light come into contact, darkness wins, right? That people, humanity is clean before God, but then every time we get out there in the world and experience anything that's not kind of God himself, then we're defiled or dirtied by that thing. And to its credit, you know, this theory reflects the Old Testament perspective and the perspective of the law, right? And the Old Testament, uh, that things started with purity or cleanness, right? And anytime they came into contact with something out there in the world that wasn't, uh, namely unclean things, uh, you know, bleeding things or uh, things that seemed out of place. uh, Anytime you came into contact with something that was unclean, the clean person would then be defiled by that and be considered unclean, right? That's the perspective that we see throughout the Old Testament and throughout the law, But that is actually very different than the perspective that we see in the New Testament and the perspective that we see in the life and stories and teaching of Jesus. So I want to take a a look at some of these stories today, the stories of Jesus, uh, particularly the stories that are found in Matthew chapter 8. Now, before we look at these stories, you need some context to kind of properly frame them, right? Uh, First of all, we need to understand that these stories are coming out of the book of Matthew, and that's important, right? Because often we kind of assume that each of these gospels were written generically to everyone, right? That they're just stories of Jesus that anybody throughout history is intended to read uh, in their own context. Uh, But the book of Matthew actually has a very specific context and a very specific readership, right? The book of Matthew is written to the Jewish people, to the religious people of God, It's written to a religious, very religious community. Uh, And we know this for a number of reasons, but one, it starts with a Jewish genealogy of Jesus, right, that was intended to appeal to the Jewish listeners and readers uh, in the first century, right? Uh, And the other thing we see is that the themes throughout the book of Matthew are often themes that confront the religious assumptions that the people would have already had, right? The book of Matthew frames the stories of Jesus in a way that confronts these religious assumptions. So we jump into the story of Jesus, and as soon as we see Jesus on the public scene, the first thing we're seeing from Jesus in public is the Sermon on the Mount, right? This foundational message of a different way of being human that Jesus wants these religious people to consider, right? He goes back and forth throughout the sermon. You've heard it said this, but I tell you this, right? He's trying to present these very religious people with an understanding of a different way of being human. So he starts off with the Sermon on the Mount and then immediately transitions into living out those things and the stories that follow. And the first stories we see come from Matthew chapter 8. The first story of Jesus kind of getting to work is that he is confronted by a man with leprosy. Now, if we look at the Old Testament perspective of the story, we see Jesus who is clean. We see this man with leprosy who is not clean, uh, according to, to how they would have seen things then, and see that as Jesus would need to avoid this man who is unclean so that his cleanness wouldn't be defiled by the man. He shouldn't get near him. He definitely should not touch him. But here in the story, one of the first actions we see from Jesus in his public ministry is the opposite of that. It's the opposite of Jesus running away from being defiled by the unclean. Instead, Jesus lets the man come close to him, Jesus reaches out to the man, and Jesus touches the man. Now, this is the opposite of everything they would have been taught growing up the opposite of what the religious community would have expected. And at this point, when Jesus touches the unclean man, there would have been this uh, sigh of disbelief from the crowd, right? From the people reading and the people that were present in this moment as they watch and consider, did it get him? You know, did did the leprosy get Jesus? Is Jesus now unclean himself? But instead, what we see in the story is the opposite, that the man with leprosy was healed, that Jesus's purity came in contact with a man's impurity, and the purity of Jesus won. The purity of Jesus transformed the man. The next story in this series of stories is Jesus coming in contact with a centurion, or a Roman soldier. Uh, Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us, but in the the purity rankings, if you will, uh, they would have had uh, in their religious community, they would have this very clear understanding of kind of these stages of impurity. And actually a Roman soldier uh, being a Gentile, being a non-Jewish person, would have ranked below the Jewish leper that came to Jesus. This man would have been seen as even more unclean, even more impure than the leper before him. So once again, you have this story the story of the purity of Jesus and the confrontation with the impurity of the person they came across. And in the story, once again, we see Jesus connecting with the centurion, then affirming the centurion in his faith, and then healing the servant of the centurion. So, again, in this confrontation, Jesus was not defiled like the tension with culture posture suggests, right? The tension posture says we go out there in the world and we get defiled and then we come back to God and we're cleansed. But in this story, Jesus wasn't defiled, but instead his purity transformed the impurity of the situation. From there, uh, we get story after story following these first two that are more stories of Jesus healing people specifically by touching them And exercising demons. Again, light confronting darkness and light winning out. It's more of the same. Now, this is no coincidence that the very first stories told to the religious audience in Matthew are stories of Jesus initiating contact with the unclean and transforming their situation, not the other way around. Because there's a point that Matthew is trying to make. The point of these Jesus stories represents the final posture that Niebuhr presents. That instead of set-apartness, meaning that we avoid culture, the final posture Niebuhr presents is Christ-transforming culture. That God, through Jesus, is is in in the process of transforming our world. So yes, the Jesus follower is still to be something different or set-apart, still to be set-apart for things that enhance life and against things that diminish life. But the set-apartness is not to avoid being defiled by the world or not to avoid being considered unclean or having your uh, goodness tarnished. Uh, but the reason we're set apart is so that we can contribute that goodness to the world. Now, it's interesting that these stories in the beginning of Jesus follow the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, as the kind of foundational teaching of Jesus, starts in Matthew 5 with these metaphors of salt and light. And I want to read that together with you here. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus says this to his followers. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So here we have these metaphors of light and salt. And as we consider the metaphor of light, there's a couple of things that I'd like us to know. First of all, this is a metaphor of change and influence, right? The purpose of light or lights is that it influences or changes the status of darkness, right? We bring light into the world for the difference it makes, the way that it changes the darkness around us. And so if we're to take this metaphor of light and apply it to how we as followers of the way of Jesus are set apart, We realize that the goal of our set-apartness is not just living or surviving the world, but influence, right? And we see this in the Lord's Prayer as Jesus is teaching us how to pray later on. He says, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? So this is a prayer that heaven would change, or sorry, excuse me, that earth would change to look more like heaven someday, right? Which acknowledges that it is not there. Our culture, our society, our world is not yet where it needs to be. And the purpose then Jesus is saying in this uh, metaphor of light is that we as those who are following the life-giving way of Jesus would be a part of the process of transformation and influence of our world as it becomes to look more like heaven. The second thing I want us to know from this metaphor of the light is that the proper place for light is precisely in areas of darkness, right? If we are supposed to be a light that brings life and goodness more into our society and the world, the proper place for that isn't to retreat into rooms that are already full of light, right? It's not to form these, uh, form and stay in these Christian communities of light that are separated and apart from the world, uh, we're not to hide and hope that the darkness doesn't diminish our light, but the call is to be present in a way that's available to make a difference. Right? It says in that passage, we take the light and we put it on a stand. Right? We put it out there in the darkness for the purpose of change and influence. So what does this mean for us, Right? is the questions that come to mind. What does it look like for us as Jesus people? to not run from culture and society, but to contribute toward it from a source of light and life and goodness. What does it look like in this time especially? So here's some questions for us. What goodness or beauty could you create to encourage or inspire life in this season? In what ways can you be a light to encourage or influence goodness in the world around us? Second, in what ways can you show up in the places that feel the most dark, where life at times seems to be the most diminished? In what ways can we run into the darkness to contribute goodness there? I think of a story of uh, the trip Jason and I took to Northern Ireland uh, last year. And while we are there, we went to a monastery called uh, kind of on the edge of the country, right? And while we're at this monastery, which monasteries are kind of these secluded places in many ways um, where the monks are silent for much of their day, but not all of it, we met with one of the monks there, Brother Thierry, who is this uh, French monk uh, that had been a part of this community for a while. And the interesting thing is in a monastery, right, that's already kind of a world in some ways of social distancing, right? The, the, the world we're walking through now is a world that's kind of common for the experience of what they're working with. Uh, and while there's kind of this social distancing from society and the world in some ways, what was evident from Brother Cherry was that his approach and posture to the world was very much the opposite of that. Uh, it was interesting that he was reading books and he was uh, sending letters to the editor and book reviews, even to American magazines all the way across the ocean, uh, right, that were uh, criticizing... Uh, positions that did not reflect the goodness of God and arguing for the goodness of God in the ways in which we perceive and interact with those around us and the ways we love others, right? So even in this uh, perceptively withdrawn pre- position, as it seems from others, Brother Cherry wasn't withdrawn from the world, but instead he was reaching out and finding ways to engage the world and bring light and goodness to the world, even from what seems like a distance, What does it look like for us to do the same in this time of isolation? All right, so the second metaphor in this passage is salt, right? And the the thing about salt is the difference it brings, right? The set-apartness. You never put salt on something because it's the same as what you've already got, right? You put salt on something because of how different it is. So clearly the point is that change only comes through being different, Right. There's this purpose in the difference and the set apartness is what's key because the difference is what makes it the, the difference is what makes a difference. But then there's this this phrase in there in verse 13 that says, but if the salt loses its saltiness and there's that question, what if the salt loses its saltiness? Right. I mean, and this question is the very thing that the run and hide from culture people fear. Right. What happens if we run towards society with the goal of bringing light, but what happens if when we do that, we're the ones that start to change, right? What if we get out there and we're mixing it up and our differences start to fade? If we start to live life just like everybody else, what happens if our salt loses its saltiness? Because this whole transforming culture thing only works if we're making sure that we're staying grounded in the ways of Jesus and that's first transforming us, drawing us into life. But reality tells us that living counterculturally for any reason is difficult, assimilation is the norm. I've had some friends who have uh, studied abroad for a year, uh, some in Spain and some in Costa Rica, different Spanish-speaking countries, and when they come back, uh, one of their goals is to maintain their fluency in the Spanish language. Um, But one of the things they acknowledge is how difficult it is in a world that isn't predominantly speaking English to maintain that fluency in a different language. And so in their efforts for that, they realize that if they're not practicing it regularly, they're going to lose that unique uh, skill that they have for this other language, right? And so you see them do a variety of things. They will call up other Spanish speakers and they will try to have uh, phone conversations over time just in Spanish to make sure that they are refining uh, and continuing that skill of Spanish speaking. Uh, Or they will watch TV shows or movies that are just Spanish language TV shows and movies. Right, there's this understanding that if they are not practicing and staying immersed in this thing that makes them different, this different that they want to continue, they're going to lose that set-apartness. They're going to lose that uniqueness. So how do we stay immersed in our uniqueness as followers of Jesus? How do we stay immersed in the way of Jesus? Well, there's a couple of paths. One is the community of those who are on the same path. Right, which we know is the church. We need to keep coming together with those who are walking towards the same values, walking with the same unique set of partners. We need to be getting together with those who remind us to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to not repay evil with evil, but with good. We need to be getting together with those who remind us that the last shall be first. If we're not getting together with those, how easy it is for us to forget about the ways which were set apart and just become immersed in the life of the rest of the society. A second way that we maintain our uniqueness is through the practices, right? We have this tradition of centuries of Jesus followers coming back to the well to be reminded of who they are and what the world can be, right? So we have these practices that maintain us, that refresh us, that revive us. Practices like prayer, spending time before God, listening, being reminded of God's truth for us. Meditation and meditation on the scriptures, right, that refresh us and remind us of the set-apart perspective. Practices like almsgiving or giving generously that remind us that there's more than just our own uh, sustenance, there's more than our own survival at stake. And ancient practices like the examine which focus us on truth and gratitude at moments when it's so easy to just focus on the challenges before us. These practices are something that keep us grounded in our unique call towards life and away from the things that diminish life in the world around us. So my prayer for us today is this that as we try to be present to the presence of God in a world that isn't always paying attention, is that, first of all, that we would be set apart. Set apart for the life-giving way of being human that Jesus brought us. And then also, in our current situation, whether it's now in this time of social distancing and quarantine or later when the doors are kind of flung wide open and we emerge into the sun again, is that we would keep returning to the well of Jesus, Into these practices that refine us towards life, that we would not hide from the places that seem most dark in the world, and that we would keep putting ourselves out there for the sake of others. Part of these discussions we're having, we're hoping become discussions, right? That we're able to kind of keep the circle as it is, that stay in community together. And one of the aspects, uh, one of the ways we do this in church is we have open floor. And we want to continue that here even uh, across a distance. So we've set up a phone number uh, that you can call that I want you to call and respond to these questions that I'm about to give you if you feel led. And we're going to take some of those responses that we receive and we're going to, to patch them together and put out uh, another podcast episode midweek with some of the responses of what you guys are feeling as you listen to some of these things. So uh, the number heres 574-574-574. 387 2151. Again, 574 387 2151. That is the voicemail line. You call it, you just leave a voicemail, and we'll be able to take it from there. But here are the questions that I would love to hear your responses to from our voicemail. First of all, I want you to consider how you can create some beauty or goodness for the world in this unsettled time. What can you do? What can you create? And then call us and let us know what you did. And how that went all right the second thing is return to some practices this week any things we talked about or any of the other practices maybe that have been meaningful to you over time return to some of those practices and just kind of let us know how that goes call and share your experience all right friends uh i've really enjoyed this time i've gotten to spend processing this and sharing with you i miss you so deeply and i can't wait until we can be together again in person uh, my heart and my prayers are definitely with you. Please reach out and contact me and let me know how there's any way I can be praying for you or be there for you. Finally, I want to leave you with this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from his 1957 sermon titled Loving Your Enemies, a quote that summarizes the posture of Christ's transforming culture. Dr. King said this, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Grace and peace be with you, friends.